welcome back everyone to a brand new episode of virtual coffee my name is alexa collier and on this podcast i sit and have virtual coffee with accomplished and innovative early career professionals and small business owners now with me today is wilf nelson this is actually the second time Wolf has been on Virtual Coffee. His first episode was number 11. I encourage you to check that one out if you're interested in hearing more about Wolf's academic and career journeys. A little bit about Wilf is he graduated from the University of Birmingham in 2015 with a bachelor's degree in psychology, and he also has his master's in neuroscience. He's currently pursuing his PhD at the University of Birmingham, and he has a lot of experience as a behavioral expert at various companies, and he's also now the owner of Mythos Media Productions, a podcast company which produces his own podcast, which is called Water Cooler Neuroscience. Wolf is definitely an expert, and I'm so happy to have him back on the show. On this episode, we get into the topic of science and business, so why do those with a PhD want to own their own company and work for themselves versus going into academia. And Wolf also dives into why companies should hire or consider hiring PhDs for whatever industry they're in to help them with data and making decisions, stuff of that nature. So this episode is jam-packed with great advice and perspectives from Wolf. Now, before we dive into the episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you can rate and review Virtual Coffee on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also find us pretty much wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're also on social media on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Virtual Coffee Podcast. Now, with that, happy listening and let's dive into this episode with Wilf. Welcome, Wilf. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Happy to have you back on the show. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's awesome. getting cold here in England. Yes, I well, I our definitions of cold might differ, but here in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's now in the the high 60s, low 70s Fahrenheit. So, it's getting chilly for us as well. <laughs> I have no clue what Fahrenheit translates in temperatures. <laughs> this is something that I know is a massive issue between America yes. and the rest of the world. Fahrenheit <laughs> is a mystery system to me. Yes, and I have no idea how to convert Celsius either, but I know America's the odd one now and we should just convert to Celsius. <laughs> Celsius makes sense intuitively. I, mm-hmm. I find that. Fahrenheit is confusing at times. Yeah. Well, we're the weird ones. Like everyone, right, does Celsius for the most part in the rest of the world. Yeah, I guess England's not entirely fair on this. So we're moving <laughs> generationally more to being metric. But um, for example, we still use miles, we oh, don't use re- kilometers. Really? Huh. Yeah, it's dead weird. So when cooking, everything's milligrams, everything's milliliters. When you are trying to um, sort out all the timings, we do the days, months, years and build mm-hmm. up um, based on length of time. For some reason, when you're traveling, it's, you know, 60 miles to go somewhere, not approximately 80 kilometers. That's, that's interesting. My conversion. <laughs> yeah, so it's we're shifting, but it's uh, very much a generational thing that younger generations are more likely to use metric. Mm-hmm. But none of the road signs here use kilometers, so there would be no point saying that a place is 100 kilometers away because nobody would really know how to translate that easily to the signs. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder what the the history is on that. That could be a whole whole nother podcast episode. (laughs) Yeah, well, also, as um, as we've got more used to the sciences, um, everywhere kind of moves to metric since the sciences use metric. You don't really use imperial ever in the sciences. It It wouldn't make sense to do so. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I I bet it definitely stems from that. Interesting. All right, well, let's dive into our topic of science and business. Yeah, let's just get right in. So, you know, speaking to you previously, you mentioned that a big topic in the scientific community right now is scientists leaving academia positions and, and going into their own businesses. So we'd love for you to dive into what that means what does that mean when you say a scientist goes into their own business yeah so i think i need to clarify that it's actually Mm -hmm. somewhat of a false topic so let me explain the view is that you start your postgraduate education you're not doing that to further your career in the sense of a business person who goes on to do an mba to become a director but you want to do academia you want to research topics for the sake of researching them Mm -hmm. And then you go and do your PhD, you'll graduate your PhD, and then you'll have a faculty position and work as a researcher in a university. And very rarely would you 
work as a PhD researcher for a large company. That's kind of the standard view. And that's the view I had when I started. In reality, it's actually the opposite. Approximately one to half of 1% of all PhD graduates get faculty positions full time. It's about 5% in total get part time faculty positions teaching and research in the university. And the vast, vast majority go on to work in industry either as scientists, but obviously not every PhD is a science topic, or they'll mm-hmm. go and work as consultants, engineers, mathematicians, also banking and risk assessment. It's very easy to understand how a PhD can work in a banking environment if you understand what a PhD does. And on one of my recent episodes that's going to come out next month, we spoke about this with Joseph Galea about how the skills you pick up naturally in a PhD to just do your work very easily translate to working in a quantitative numbers-based environment. And what a PhD thinks of as standard or basic levels of data processing in the outside world are probably much more advanced than they realize. So if they're happy to transfer over to those worlds of working in corporate, it's not a difficult place to be. Mm-hmm. With the business part, a surprising number of PhDs actually run their own business. And it's not actually surprising when you realize that a huge part of your training as a PhD is to work by yourself. You're taught to solve problems, understand how to make things, understand how to fix things, use a very heavily evidence-based mindset. I think what a scientist or a PhD student thinks evidence-based means and what the rest of the world thinks evidence-based means are a bit different. I've been accused of thinking that evidence-based is a bit overkill by my view. (laughs) And from that, that logically then leads to, would you want to run a consultancy company where you analyze risk or you look at how to make mathematical models to predict things or very normal things that a PhD student might do and do you want to go work for somebody else or would you rather do it for yourself and since you've probably spent the last three to four even seven years in America doing it by yourself with minimal supervision and that can be replaced by business mentors and other support programs that are available pretty much across the first world it is alluring to go do it for yourself yeah, that's okay. That's a very yeah interesting topic. I'm glad you went into and explained that that science and business topic because yeah, someone who isn't pursuing their PhD and isn't in that world, I do have the assumption that you get your PhD in order to become a professor, in order to teach at a university, at a college. But that's a very interesting fact that only you said one to one point five percent get full time faculty positions. So, in, from your personal perspective what would it mean for you and for your particular PhD topic to go into your own business? So for me, it's that I run this show. If listeners haven't heard, I run a podcast network. Mm-hmm. I run multiple shows called Water Cooler Neuroscience. And I do that full time now as of yesterday when I finished my third year of my PhD. And I talk about topics. The brand of my show, however, is I don't massively care what you did. I care about how you did it. And that's because if somebody said, I managed to make a new form of penicillin, you kind of go, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. But if they explain how they did it and what that involved, that's a lot more interesting. Lots of people can say, I did something, but talking about how you built it is a really fascinating process. And my job when I have my guests on is to then make that understandable to an audience that may not even have any formal education in science. Mm -hmm. And generally... Those that have met the sciences before understand what a variable is, you know, something you change and try to understand. Some people who understand what an outcome is and a hypothesis, I expect X to happen because I change these things in the environment and we think they have a direct relationship on X. And X is just a term for anything in science. Mm -hmm. Those people are very happy with me then going, okay, here is a postgraduate level science discussion and I'm going to explain how that works to you. For me, it was taking those skills and... I've had some people kind of think, oh, it's a shame that you're leaving your PhD and you don't get to use your PhD in your job. That's a very common thought. I'll go into it in a bit more detail, but it's seen as a terrible shame that you spend so much time learning to be a scientist and then don't use your science skills. That is almost utterly wrong. I can't have any of the conversations I have with the guests on my show unless I am trained to a PhD level to understand what they're saying. How scientists talk is a lot more complicated than people realize. And sometimes the terms we use are terms you may hear in a layperson perspective that mean something very different. So, for example, if I say that I am trying to understand a person's experience 
oh, you go, oh, I know what experience means. But as a psychologist and a neuroscientist, I'm trying to understand what are you consciously perceiving? What are you unconsciously perceiving? What parts of that information are you not understanding and valuing properly? How are you understanding um, the different weightings? How is your attention handling that situation? So you quickly get from that description, the way I'm perceiving some of these words we're using is much more complicated and a lot more difficult. And I have to understand as the scientist who is handling it, what that word means. But then as the host of my shows, I have to try and translate that and realize, okay, we're using this term in a layperson perspective. I don't need to really explain. And now we're using it in a scientific term and I need to break that down for people and make that comfortable. Right. So I can't make my shows about doing a PhD in science. I just can't. And also I've been asked repeatedly, how do you get the guests you get? Because I've managed to get some high profile guests in the world of science. Mm-hmm. And people are like, how do you talk to them? They're so busy. And Generally, the response is that when I approach them and say I run a media company, which I do, I make media products, and I think that's the best way to describe it, I don't approach them that I am a media person. I approach them that I'm a neuroscientist that would like to have a discussion. I have met scientists who have been borderline traumatized by the media because they'll go, we have this new process. And so there was a scientist who was looking at different ways in which those with a disorder called conduct disorder Mm -hmm. have their brains structured and particularly how the white matter, the parts that send the communications rather than the grey matter, your cells, but yeah, the tracks that send the communication, how they're structured in those that have conduct disorder and those that don't. And the reason conduct disorder is so interesting is it's what tends to lead to psychopathy and sociopathy in adults. You actually can't be a child and have psychopathy or sociopathy. They are adult disorders by definition. But conduct disorder is um, the the violent. It almost follows um, to the violent youth stereotype. Mm -hmm which is not fair. It's a lot more developed and it's a lot more nuanced than that. And if anybody's interested on season one of my series, Dr. Stefan de Brito talks about conduct disorder in quite a bit of detail, but I won't go into that here. So they talk about this and go, I don't want you to explain what you did. Give me the soundbite. Give me the two minute explanation. Right. You know, you're, so if your child has conduct disorder, their brain is fundamentally different than yours, etc. And when you actually think about that kind of statement, that's meaningless everybody's brain has different functions and different setups but somebody with conduct disorders visual system is still at the back of their head and their prefrontal cortex is still functioning at the front of their head and their auditory and their attention systems are all going to work more or less the same we're looking at small changes that lead to bigger changes in behavior but equally you could give somebody alcohol and their brain hasn't changed at all and they might get more aggressive because their inhibitions have been reduced Mm -hmm. So saying your brain structure is different and this is like you realize very quickly that's a meaningless statement. Right. There is so many you're picking one sentence out of what really is almost a two page discussion on what's happening in somebody's brain. And scientists hate it. They really, really dislike that process. That's why sometimes scientists like to sit in the ivory tower and not talk to media people. I approach that on a different concept of I want to talk about what you do. You spend this time making this experiment, sitting them down, running the scans, making the tests, analyzing the test. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Because if I talk to a listener about that through my guest explaining it, you understand it. You understand that we need to run these tests and why did we test them on emotional regulation and how do we even test them on emotional regulation? There are many different ways you can test that. And maybe we picked one test over another and you start to get into the detail of it and you understand the sciences more. And once the sciences are more accessible, they're more interesting. So that's how I moved into doing a business. And as you can see, being a scientist is integral. I, I couldn't really hand, just take this, hire somebody to be a host and hand it over to them. Right. They wouldn't know how to run the interview. And mm-hmm. when I've used editors for my episodes, I do a lot of the editing because, again, an editor knows how to do the more technical issues about cleaning up the audio, mm-hmm. but they don't know how to actually structure the episode because they don't know what's important. They don't know what needs emphasis and what needs explanation and what needs a redo that's fundamentally the job of a scientist to do that on my show and it's a high level right that's yeah I guess how my personal experience into running a business came across I'm really happy you brought up this topic of you know a common question being oh isn't it such a shame you're not using your PhD you're not using the deep scientific expertise you have and I just love your perspective on that because I was going to ask, you know, do you feel you needed your PhD to run your your media company? And clearly the answer is yes. And mm. 
I just loved how you explain it because it seems you are able to, in your specific case, as the host of your show, you're able to speak to scientists at the same level as you. So one, like you said, they want to talk to you because <laughs> you have that that knowledge in, to speak to them appropriately and at their level. And then you can also almost convert that conversation to a level that anyone can understand, whether or not you have a PhD. You're, you're able to play that role of, of converting that conversation to that appropriate level. And yeah, I just love that. And also your PhD gives you that credibility so that these high-level scientists want to speak to you. That makes a ton of sense. And I can see how that can be applied to other businesses, right? Not just a media company. No, I can but, speak about that. It's cool. It, like, yeah. There's a really cool perspectives on this. So I was speaking with my stepfather and my stepfather works for a construction company. So making houses, mm. condos, et cetera, things like that. Sure. And there, um, I mentioned like that some construction companies have seen the value of a PhD. PhDs are really highly valued. So if you say, I have a PhD, everybody's like, ooh. And then they kind of don't want to talk to you anymore because they get scared. <laughs> that, that's a really annoying part of the conversation when I say I do a PhD in neuroscience. Everybody goes, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so I was watching the show at the weekend and you're like, wow. Yeah, they get ouch. scared. <laughs> I, I try to see that there isn't as much they can talk about and they want to move the topic on something that they're able to talk about. And I'm being selfish by focusing on a specialist topic that I kind of lord over and I don't want it to be that way. But I get that mm -hmm. they see it that way. But part of them in the back of my head says, yes, they're scared. And yeah, I don't know exactly what the balance of that is. But say that you did run a construction company, right? OK, mm -hmm. I'm going to propose why hiring a PhD for your prospective company is a really good idea. Okay. And then I'm going to talk about the challenge of doing it and what you can try and do to make it appealing to PhDs. Because I think those are older top. I think those are interesting topics. Yeah. And I interject where you want. Sure. So you run a construction company and you want to know what type of houses do we want to sell? Now, obviously, what you're going to do, what you think you're going to do is I don't need a PhD for that. I'm just going to go look at detached houses, semi-detached houses, terraced houses and bungalows. And I'll see which one sells the most. Right. You're thinking, OK, that makes sense. But first off, when are you looking? What year? You're looking this year because right now the sale of houses is not the easiest thing to interpret. You know, there's lots of factors involved. Mm -hmm. So are you going to look at the last 10 years? But there's been a couple of housing crises in those 10 years across mm -hmm. the world. And what about when immigration changed? What about when people were selling their houses because of Brexit? I'm not talking about the politics, but just the physical mechanics that some people right. chose to leave. And some people also found that they were happy to now stay in Britain. And for all of those reasons, and whatever your reasons want to be, that's going to affect housing. And what about when we had a real focus on this trade war with different countries and the effects of steel and lime and concrete and copper and brass? All these things that go into building a house, they change. Now you're thinking, God, that's a lot of stuff. But as a scientist, you're trained to understand these things. And maybe you'll start going, OK, what if I make a model for you? And they're called regression models. Um, and the kind of way you can understand it is to regress the like standard term for regressing is to like go back to being a child. Well, imagine if you could take a really complex, fully formed thing and regress it back to its first egg, the thing that hatches it and grow that into what you see. So you see the whole lifespan of something. So a regression model can say, I think that out of everything that's going to happen to a student when they go into an exam, the amount of caffeine they drank is important. And we test all the caffeine levels that people have and we test their scores. And we also have to test how much they studied and how much they want it. And if they've got learning disabilities, all these things. And then you go, if I remove all of those other things through statistical methods called controlling them, does the level of caffeine let me predict if you got an A or a B? Mm -hmm. That's called a regression model. And they're not okay. actually that hard to run, but designing them is really hard. Okay. And that's what you go to school to do. So we don't work in a construction company and we go, I'm going to look at the stock market. I'm going to look at, has there been major political events? I'm going to look at, has the fluctuating prices of construction materials affected our floating prices of costs, which then affects how the consumers see us? And you make this big statistical model and they look super fancy and they're really not. Once you know how to make them, they're pretty simple. Mm -hmm. And then you have a PhD student goes, actually, you're selling more detached houses because more people are having kids. And they need hmm. a bigger house, but you're actually selling less of them than you normally would based on previous years when people had kids. And that's why you're not selling semi-detached houses. And right now, there's a suggestion we're going to have a baby boom in a hypothetical world. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there's going to be a COVID baby boom. Although I have heard that we've got cronials, which is so Oh, my cute. gosh. <laughs> anyway, no, say that that's the case, right? And then you model right. that. What you should say then is, my suggestion as your data analyst is, build semi-detached houses with gardens. They are going to be much more value to you 
down a semi-detached house where you're not going to be able to fit in 2.4 kids in a picket white fence. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying that then what you do is you let this PhD take over all your decision making, but you now have information of in two years, and it takes two, say it takes two years to build your houses, if I build semi-detached houses because they're cheaper, mm -hmm. my competitor is going to sell more houses because there's going to be more families that want to put a baby in it. And that's the value you get from a PhD student. That ability not only to make statistical models, but also to kind of understand how systems, really complex systems work and start modeling for you to give you the best possible data. Now, does that mean suddenly you fire every single construction crew that's making semi-detached houses, turn them down and make detached? No, that's taking it too far. But right. do you now have new information that maybe you want to market your, your detached houses better because you can't make more houses, you're up to budget? Yes, you're getting more information. Also, PhD students are very useful when they want to, uh, most of us are taught to code on some level. Okay. I mean, coding is an incredibly valuable skill because if anybody's ever tried coding, it's effectively a nightmare. It is unbelievably difficult. Coding will teach you what logic is. <laughs> yep. Not weird human logic it will teach you what logic is and it can be very hard to make things so if you want to start making apps if you want to start making code to analyze that data so that you can make really complex systems where all of your admins and all of your accountants have their spreadsheets fed into a piece of code that can read them and tell you when are we going to hit triple quarters based on past data a regression can do that it can tell you repeatedly based on how different parts of the market are working do we have changes in the market in spring that then normally lead to us having a problem in summer? And it can tell you yes or no. And you can feed that data in, but that's got to be coded. A machine isn't going to automatically do that for you. And if you go to Microsoft or something, they might have a coding department that can do it, but they're going to charge you mm -hmm. a lot. And it's not something that a system will automatically do. Now, Excel can do that, but again, these are advanced functions. So the value of a PhD student becomes really clear the way I've put it. They're a very technically trained group that aren't just going to talk about their, their thesis over and over again, and that's useless to you because they worked on how to make a certain type of light-reflecting molecule. It's like, no, but when they made that light-reflecting molecule, assuming they're some sort of chemist, they set up an experiment, they designed it, they worked through multiple iterations, they broke down the engineering, they analysed it, they understood what might be getting in the way. If you remove the fact that that was chemistry, that's very similar to most businesses. You have a product, you tweak it, you change it, you mm. want to know more sales and what got in your way. So what's the problem? You know, they might have worked on some super fancy chemicals, but sounds like they're probably worthwhile to you. Now, there are historically some problems to get in the way with hiring PhD students, which I said I'd talk about. Mm -hmm. So the first is that people don't really know what PhDs are. That's true. Most people, and I hope I'm dispelling some myths, think that a PhD only wants to work in academia that they are only going to know about their subject. So even if you hire a chemistry PhD, you need to be a chemistry company. Completely not true. Okay. Entirely not true. Bunches of physics PhDs who work on particle physics, they work in banks. Because if you can understand something as mathematically complicated as quantum physics, you can definitely understand something as mathematically complicated as a mortgage economy. Mm -hmm. And if you can understand that, then you can figure out how to make securities, options, and deposits on it. And if you can do that, you can make us money. It's the ability to use high-level thought that's important, not that you need a chemist or a physicist. So don't get focused on what their topic is. Focus on the fundamental skills they used and go from there. So say you get over that problem. The next problem is going to be that you will try and hire them and have them. And then you'll just, on day one, you'll just go, data analyze for me. Do it. It's magic. I don't know what's happening, but just do it. And normally they'll go, but how does your company work? Because you're taking somebody who knows how to take complex systems, but you've not taught them about your system. And that's proprietary. You're not going to publish that in every journal. You're not going to publish that, like, a, you know, just a business journal. You're not going to publish that in every newspaper. So you need to spend some time training them. Mm -hmm. And then normally the response is, but I just hired this super smart person who knows how to do everything. That's what you said. <laughs> yeah, they're smart, but they're not clairvoyant. <laughs> you know, yeah, so on occasion, it is going to take you a month or two to train them, but they will learn faster by the nature of the fact that they've learned in that environment than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And sure, maybe you might have some new hire who comes in who's got an undergrad and maybe he learns faster than one of your PhD students. Sure, there's natural variance in intelligence. That person may be smarter and the degree might not be clear, but on average, over 100 people you hire, the PhD students probably are going to be quicker. Mm -hmm. So once you take the time to teach them, they will learn your business really quickly. So that can be a bit of a mistake that people will take somebody on and go, just do it, you know. 
right. and then at the end of the week like why are we not 10 times more profitable it's like because i'm taking the time <laughs> i need to understand i need to think and i have had issue of language communications with companies when i worked as a business consultant which i did um in the mid uh, 2010s mm-hmm. so i was with some companies and they were saying our product is going to make unemployed people more employable or our product's going to help these specialist populations um, more comfortable and help them live more fulfilling lives and it's like okay cool but you've just made a prediction you're saying directly that your product has a relationship and that's a causal relationship. So for example, a causal relationship is if I hit my hand on a desk and it hurts, one thing caused the other. Right. A correlational relationship is if I was to kick a desk and then a bird was to fly by my window, they probably didn't have anything to do with each other. But you could kind of mistake that kicking my desk makes birds fly behind my window. (laughs) And unfortunately, people can go, well, we released this new uh, model that helps with unemployment. And then we saw a 2% decrease in unemployment in this district. We did that. Did you? Or was it that a new supermarket opened up? Mm. Which one? And obviously, business owners are going to want to say it's their product. That's You can't ask business owners to basically commit financial right. suicide and admit their product doesn't do anything. But when you are talking to a scientist or a data analyst, they are going to call you out on this because you're proclaiming truth of the universe. You know, my product did X. Mm-hmm. And there, there is a physical reality whether that did or did not happen. Now, it's easy to test, but it's very hard. And I spoke with one company and they said, um, we are going to prove that our model helps reduce unemployment. And what I said to them is, well, to prove that, you've got to basically cut up the districts you're working with into sections. You know, a section that gets no support whatsoever and a section that gets the standard council support of because the council still was providing um, help with cvs and there's the job center in the uk that helps you um, set up interviews and stuff which is part of our unemployment support here and then you've got your model and we need to test those and we need to see that maybe if there is a three percent decrease in unemployment maybe you guys didn't do anything and the standard unemployment rate was going to do that anyway or maybe the council brought out a new unemployment record i'm not saying they're wrong and i'm not saying they're lying but i'm saying i need to test to know Right. I can't assume. And before, some, and again, I have heard this other complaint, which somebody goes, but now you're throwing stones at us. It's like, okay, yes, I'm slightly throwing stones at you. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to do it in the politest way possible, but it benefits you. And here's how it benefits you. Say that you have a product that genuinely does reduce, or um, say that it helps students get 5% better scores in their exams. Mm-hmm. And I can prove that. We do the test, we set up what's called a mixed participant control, where we test them before and after, and we test them with your method and without that method, and that's called a mixed control system. And then we run something called an ANOVA, which is an analysis of variance. So we test to see, do the scores truly vary because of you, or do they vary because of something else? All nice statistical controls. And I have full scientific study that goes, I promise you, your students did better by 5% than those that weren't on your course. And you go, that's great. And then somebody comes along and goes, Yeah, but we can do it by 10%. You're like, okay, prove your data. That person is doing the exact same problem. They're proclaiming a truth without data. So if you want to be protected by what scientists can do to prove your stuff does it, that also means you have to take it on the other side when we prove that it didn't work the way it wants. And that's unfortunately just the way it works. So I guess that's the other thing that happens when you try and hire scientists on board is they'll work with what the data says. And if you ask us to talk about things that the data doesn't support, it's a very difficult sell. So you have decided that you want to possibly take on a PhD um, researcher or what's called a postdoctorate researcher is one that finished their PhD and then worked in an academic lab afterwards. They're called postdocs. And then you bring them on board and you realize you need to give them some training and you need to realize that on occasion they are going to say things you don't want them to say or things you don't want to hear, but they are doing it with the aim of giving you the best possible information. The next problem is, and this is a culture problem, academia has something of an issue with industry, unfortunately. The main problem is seeing that it's selling out. And I've spoken to academics about this over the last month when I've been in recordings for my new season, that they agree it's an unfortunate but incorrect view that working for a corporate environment is selling out, which isn't great. I think part of that is that banking has developed a really negative stigma over the last 12 years. Insurance companies and lobbying companies have also got obviously very high interests in hiring academics and researchers that can understand how things work. But again, they have a negative stigma behind them. But that's unfair. For everybody that says lobbying is awful, yeah, sure, but there's also lobbying for things like getting kids to eat vegetables 
and more textbooks in schools. You know, lobbying inherently is the way we communicate with politicians and politicians have a lot of demands on their time. So lobbying is needed. So working for a lobbying company isn't inherently evil or working for a risk analysis company isn't inherently evil because for every time there is somebody that says, I had my house burned down and an insurance company denied me the claim, there's another person that's trying to cause an, an arson Mm-hmm. to make an insurance claim and take money from that pot the insurance company has. And if they pay that, then everybody's premiums have to rise to keep the company running. So every time you're having, well, you screwed me over. Yes, but they also stopped other people who were committing fraud. And that unfortunately is two sides of the same coin. And there are regulations to control that. But if you remove all of the checks so everybody who puts a claim in gets told yes, you're going to have a lot of fraud all of a sudden. So when people are considering moving to companies that have got negative stigmas, you need to realize that you're seeing the negative and not always thinking about the positive. Now, I don't mean to be naive. The companies are going to do what is best for them as a profit, but that doesn't mean that every company you work for is evil. So one of the other big problems when you're trying to hire a PhD is the main reason that academics will stay in industry is they'll quote the following sentence. I am granted a lot of intellectual freedom in my work. That is a nebulous and weird sentence. It's very hard to understand what it actually means. So I'll try and break it down. But ultimately, the complaint is, if I worked for your medical company, you'll tell me what to research. And if I work in my lab, I'll get to decide what I research. And I want to decide what I want to do more than what I want you to decide what to do. And you see how that mindset very quickly leads to 14% of PhDs running their own businesses in 2016, according to a study by Global and Mail. You know, it's high numbers. That thought process is very quickly going to map on. But here's the truth. Researchers still chase funding trends. So there's been a lot of funding recently on healthy and unhealthy aging. We're looking at how does the brain age in a healthy way and how does the brain age in unhealthy ways with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and dementia. That's because there is an aging population in a lot of the first world. And politicians are appealing to an elderly demographic that they know has an important voting perspective. So by showing that there are scientific research that is funded by the government going into these topics that matter for those who are aging, and then that is where the money goes, and that's where you have to try and make your research fit, you are still applying to financial pressures. That's just the way it is. And that's not bad. We should understand how aging and unhealthy aging works. But the concept that there is a huge pot of money that you can just decide and wake up one day and go, I'm going to study how visual perception works on squirrels Mm -hmm. for any random reason you just can turn up and ask for a pot of money and you get given a pot of money and you get to work on that for four years regardless of if it has any benefit to the human race whatsoever that doesn't really exist I, i don't i don't think i've ever met any place that really believed that exists even the most foundational just tell me how things work for the sake of things working grants still have stipulations on is it applied does it have an effect in the real world etc so the the real question is Are you offering a PhD or a scientist any kind of freedom in their job? Because that's really what they value. That's why you go into being a scientist. You You value the reason to get to do, on some level, to study what you want to do. There is a really simple fix for this. One day a week, have them work on their own projects and offer that. Say, we're going to look at housing, but one day a week, you look into what you think is interesting. Come back to me with that. Tell me what you find. You're offering them intellectual freedom. And before you think, oh, well, I'm losing 20% of my working week and it's not useful, you'd be amazed what they turn up with. And I'm not going to just give some examples. You won't even be able to guess what they come up with. (laughs) The ability to just analyze and understand and look at, they they might end up going, for example, what if how people decide to move into what jobs matters? What if this is actually a trend that as people move into more creative roles or they move out of creative roles their ability to buy a house going back to our construction example changes media and creative industries are known to be less stable by their nature what if they are less likely to buy a house does that lead me to understand the trend that if there is a increase in recruitment in the creative sectors we should predict that i don't know i'm guessing by the way mm-hmm. but if you let somebody have a day a week, they might start finding this. And again, it's more data and that's a competitive edge you have. So you can answer that really quickly. And this is what some of the big companies like Google and Facebook and Apple did. They went, 
I'm going to give you some time every week to do what you want to do. I know that everybody talks about their muffin bars and yoga things, but that's not what <laughs> sure. I say. I know yeah. everybody likes trumpet. The millennials went, oh, muffin bar, I'll go work for you instead of this other company. And everybody's like, wow, you're shallow. That's not why they chose those companies. Mm-hmm. They chose those companies because they were told we have functionally unlimited resources. You're never going to burn through our resources. It will never happen. And from that, what if I let you look at what you want? And then suddenly you get predictive algorithms that can decode faces or you get things like um, DeepMind where somebody started making AI and then Google bought and went, oh, we've been bought by Google. What do you want us to do? The exact same thing you've been doing. We don't want you to change a thing. And then later on, Google did ask for stipulations, but they were still interesting stipulations. That's how you keep the best talent. Uh, It's a phrase that James Dyson said. He said there was no point hiring the best graduates to then tell them what to do. He hires the best graduates and then asks them, what do you want to do? Because then you get the new inventions. Yeah. Because rather than saying, we want to make this new vacuum cleaner um, that stands upright and it has a Wi-Fi remote that lets you turn it on. It's like, and then you have somebody go, cool idea. But you know, for the same price, I can make a drone of Roombas. Yeah. <laughs> that go around your house and clean you. It's like, so what? Yeah, what if I just had your entire house clean itself? You're like, holy crap, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's what you get. And you have to somewhat let go of the ego that, yes, you built your company or you're a hiring manager for a large company, but that doesn't mean you have every idea. I'm not saying you have bad ideas. I'm just saying you don't have every idea. And hiring the best people and then telling them what to do with your ideas means by definition, you are losing out on their ideas. Very simply, because you're telling them what to do. So that is a way to attract really high level talent. The other thing is this very odd tension. So my university does a lot of support to help PhDs find their way after their degree. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're told is do not tout your PhD. Don't really? Turn, yes. Don't turn up and go, I have a PhD, I'm super smart. Because you immediately threaten the intellectual security of the people interviewing you. <laughs> you should be humble, confident, but humble and say, I've done some research, but I'm willing to learn, you know, tell me what to do, sensei, <laughs> in that right. kind of mindset and almost play down how smart you are. And um, you have to, uh, basically, a lot of it is respecting that the people you're talking to are equally as smart as you. Mm-hmm. When you think about that statement, that's probably not true by definition of the average IQ of a PhD student versus the average IQ of the rest of the population. But you are made to play to that. One of the things that companies can mistake is you don't respect that the person you're talking to is very heavily trained. And they are intelligent. Now, I'm not saying you fawn over them and I'm not saying you hire them to a director's position in six weeks, but saying, well, because of your high level of qualification, here's the average um, pay that we pay every one of our analysts. Here's 10% more. Just as a sign of respect that we know you are highly trained. That can go a damn long way, a really long way to just showing mutual respect for what they do. And that is, again, how you can attract very high talent. If you look at the cost of PhD researchers. So the average uh, wage for a PhD student when they leave and go to work for another lab is about £35,000 here in the UK. And that roughly translates as well over to the US with the exchange rate. That's in academia, working for a university or a publicly funded research lab. Industry, it's about 70 to 90. Wow. Yes, the huge increase in how much you get paid is a really massive point and leads a lot of people to wonder why they want to stay in academia and then and this should show you how much they value intellectual freedom this is a population that will lose 60 grand a year to get to do what they want to do fiercely independent fiercely but if you simply take them on board and say i will give you the resources to do the things we need but also look into what you want and i'm interested to see what you find you get a lot from them so I think that's most of what I wanted to talk about of this uh, interesting intersection. And also, I haven't spoken about it a lot directly, but you'll see why those kind of traits very quickly lead to PhDs running their own business. Mm -hmm. Because if they want to move into industry, they want to move into a corporate world, and you are not providing the incentives that make them want to work for you, they'll work for themselves. There needs to be a fair reward that if you're asking them to make some new product that's going to be worth millions and you pay them £50,000 a year... Well, they're going to see that you've shortchanged them £950,000. And why wouldn't they do it themselves? So from a corporate strategy point of view, it's a, an amazing resource to build on, an amazing resource that is mostly moving into industry and that you can take advantage of. I'd love to know your thoughts. 
I'm very happy you suggested this topic. And I, I love how you provide the perspective and, and advice for the PhD person, but also on the, you know, maybe you're the CEO or that that corporate business side as well as why you should hire, or consider hiring people with PhDs. I love that. And the one question I have off of this, which you touched upon a little bit is if I'm, you know, CEO of a company and I'm listening, you know, this conversation would convince me right away to look into, hey, is there someone with with a PhD I can hire and why that's important? But if they're still on the fence about that, what would you suggest the CEO or this high level leader of this company looks for or looks into to determine if someone with a PhD would help them, right? And I, I know that answer is probably yes, that person would be able to help you based off of everything you just stated. But what are some some things they should look into? Like, is it their data? Is it their, I don't know, certain area of their business to understand if that would benefit them? So as a CEO, I don't think you probably understand your data. And I don't mean that the stupid. Okay. I mean that a CEO has to work on strategy. You have to see the whole picture. So analyzing the data of how many car sales you've had, is just not going to be your job. You'll get given a one-page report that has the outcome. I think the main question with hiring a PhD is, are you looking for innovation? Are you Mm. looking for something to work faster? Is there a mindset that you want? One of the things that people misunderstand about PhDs is how creative you have to be to do a PhD. You are regularly, literally by definition, a PhD is a new piece of research that adds something to the field. And from that, that new piece of research has to have creative merit, not just scientific merit, but creative merit. So they're automatically a creative population. They might not seem it, but they are. But we'll say that you're running a car company, right? Mm-hmm. And not building cars. You just, um, you're a secondhand car salesman and, uh, and you're thinking this is all sounding very crazy that you're... Uh, building in the middle of a lot that has 200 cars you suddenly hire a PhD when the rest of you have all been I got my pre-college education and went to run my own business why should I hire somebody that highly educated right well first off you probably take a lot of information down about how what people have when they get their cars most people who buy a car on finance that means they have to fill in their information and that's information you have now it's possible that you don't do data analytics on that well first off a PhD is going to offer you that are there trends about what people buy and sure your salespeople are going to say if i see a bloke coming in he's going to want a sports car does the data say that hmm. yeah, yeah does it genuinely or right. are most 20 year old blokes actually going to be a bit strapped for cash and want a bargain <laughs> true yeah. and are you really going to and then question it so take that mindset of okay so 20 year old bloke comes in wants a car i think automatically i'm going to profile him that's what salespeople do that's not a bad thing I'm going to try and push this um, sports car we just got in on him. But the data shows that when they do leave and buy something, they actually buy a bargain. Okay, then automatically I'm selling him something he's not going to buy and he's going to go somewhere else. Ah, I should sell him the bargain. And that informs your training data. That informs your sales data. But you might still think you can do that yourself. So the next step is, what kind of cars am I selling in what seasons? And again, this is the data analytics. Or more importantly... What are we seeing as the trends in how people are talking? Scientific journals regularly will preempt trends that occur in the media because the media is increasingly trying to do what shows like mine do with breaking down complex topics. And I personally think they simplify them too much. Mm-hmm. But are there trends that there's going to be more hybrid cars coming? Are hybrid cars failing? Is the data in the journal saying that they're just not working? And you think, oh, I saw her on CBN. I think that's a news group in America or CBS. I don't know mm-hmm. my American news group, to be honest. <laughs> um, they're saying we should push hybrids. But in reality, you know that if you push a hybrid and you have a year guarantee, the car's going to work and they break and the data saying they're not very good cars. I don't know if they are, by the way. I'm making an example. Sure. We shouldn't invest in buying hybrids secondhand. We should actually invest in other cars that we know are more reliable. That kind of stuff is all the things the PhD is going to do. I, also, if you try and do this yourself, good luck to you because it's really hard. Yeah. Uh, this is the kind of thing that you turn up very naive on the first year of your PhD and go, I can do all of this and go, help, <laughs> this is really difficult. So the value in that suddenly becomes more clear. You're not buying them, which you are buying them. You're not buying them for a specific purpose. You're buying them for the level of education and the mindset they have. And then it's your job as a leader or as the recruitment manager to try and sell that they are going to need some support. They are going to need to be given things that maybe other people aren't going to want, you know, creative license, the ability to work in certain areas, to look into things that you might not see the value of. But even for a car sale dealership, 
you can see the value of them. Yeah. And that's important. And also, again, if you want, say that you're looking for somebody who um, worked in a uh, business PhD and you're thinking, mm-hmm. I need to start a new car dealership and I need to have somebody to run it and I want a manager. And you're thinking, OK, well, I could get an old manager or maybe you think we want to try something new. We want to try and branch out into new ideas and I want somebody to run it. You could hire, a, again, a business PhD. They're going to have a really detailed knowledge about how business works on a theoretical level. Granted, they may not have the real world experience by nature of, you know, you're taking somebody for three, four years in academia versus three, four years selling cars. But again, you're going to have somebody who's very independent mm-hmm. and will probably run the business in a very tight, logical way. When do people start? What are we selling? What are we building? And granted, yeah, maybe you're going to have to do a couple of months of training to teach them some business concepts that you want them to know. But other than that, you've got somebody who will basically run the ship by themselves because they run a lab by themselves. Yeah, yeah. And at least running a lab and running a business are at least the very similar concepts. Keep the cash flow, make sure things work, make sure nothing breaks, make sure everybody's happy, get your information, get your output, make it processable, make it understandable. There are very similar concepts in how they work. So what I hope I've advocated is that they are a population that have a lot of interesting worth. Mm -hmm. And right now they are leaving universities in floods. There's a hiring freeze. There's also been redundancy schemes. And most universities have lost a lot of their money because they actually make most of their money not on student tuition, but on accommodation, coffee shops, book sales, all of that. They they make so much money on you living on campus Mm -hmm. versus actually you giving tuition fees. Tuition fees basically break even. Okay. But the universities don't run at break even. They run on making new projects and new things to help you want to go there. And because of that, they need a lot of money. They are multi-billion dollar industries when you get down to how a university works and they lost a massive amount of their income and that means they lost a lot of their staff so if you want to deal right now on somebody who's really good (laughs) at what they do taking on board a phd probably isn't a bad thing so i think that's most of what i have to say on it Um, but i'm happy to answer any more questions sure yeah no i just love this topic i think You also are able to just explain it so clearly. And I love how you pull in examples as well, like very easy to understand examples. And I loved your tie-in of PhD and innovation and tying those two words together, really. I think that's really eye-opening. And my full-time job is a lot of innovation. And I think that's just, I mean, that's one takeaway for myself is to bring it to to our leaders of, hey, have we considered PhD graduates? Um, Because, you know, we often look for the fresh out of college, 20-something-year-olds, like, well, how could a PhD benefit our team and benefit our innovation? I just think that's a great tie-in. And I just appreciate your expertise on this. I think this is, like I said, just a great topic, a lot of to digest here. And I think to to wrap things up, Wilf, what would your, and you, you did summarize it up nicely there at the end, but what would your one takeaway be for those listening? I think the takeaway would be that a PhD and a high level of scientific or academic training isn't something that is highly specialized. Mm-hmm. They are highly trained, but they simply use their highly trained abilities on one thing by choice. But just because you see them working on one thing does not mean that's the only thing they can work on. Consider that my wife's business, mm-hmm. which I'll keep anonymous, but what she does, majority she works in an area that is related to the medical industry. And most of the people who work in her business have PhDs. Okay. And not because they're, you know, technically working with sci-fi machines making new products, but because they are an analytical, educated population that can take on the information really quickly. So when you're working in an industry that requires you to be detail focused and go through information and make sure everything's clear and correct, rather than saying, oh, well, a PhD only works on making things. It's like, no, but hang on, they work really hard on understanding the detail of how they make things and we're a detail focused business. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, we should hire them. So that would be my takeaway. Just because you're seeing a person who works in a specialized fashion does not mean they can only do one thing. Right. In fact, if anything, appreciate how trained they are and that they can move between, again, multiple specialized topics. Mm -hmm. One of the things that my job now doing my show involves is I have to read up and become a competent expert on a number of different topics very quickly. I have to be able to read, understand the person's research and be able to talk with them on their level. And that can be on something like motor learning. I've done nothing on motor learning in my PhD. But I've done multiple guests who do motor learning and been able to analyze and ask them questions and on occasion put them in tough spots because of my work, because of how I was trained. 
that's the value of it. No, I think that's summarized very nicely. And yeah, like I said, I just appreciate you coming on on this show and highlighting your expertise. It's a perspective we often don't have here on on virtual coffee. So thank you so much, Will, for your time and coming back on our show. And where can people find you and your podcast and your company? Shout out, shout out all your social medias and websites. Yeah, small shilling moment. So we ha- <laughs> I'm on the so when I was previously on, I was on the Water Cooler Neuroscience Show. Mm-hmm. We have now expanded to the Water Cooler Neuroscience Network. We have free shows that we are now making. That is Water Cooler Neuroscience, which is our main interviewing series where we talk with big name guests in the world of science. You may not know them. They may not be big names to you, but we have really world leading scientists on that show. We also have a brain talking about brains. That's a series we're working where I explain to you the history and background of psychology. Basically, everything that makes me a psychologist. And we put it on a show for you to listen to. And we have another series that's coming out on the 1st of October called Think Fast, which is short 15 minute or less episodes on a whole range of topics, including literally cutting edge research. We get a recording with a scientist and go, what are you doing today? This morning, what was your scientific project? It doesn't get more cutting edge than that. And that's what we're doing. If you want to find us, we are on watercoolerneuroscience.co.uk. You can also type in watercooler neuroscience on pretty much any podcasting app you want, but Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, we're all on there. And our social media, look for WC Neuro or Watercooler Neuroscience and you'll find us and see what we've been posting today. Excellent. Well, thank you. I feel so corporate and dirty. (laughs) No, no, you got it. You got to do it. And I hope everyone checks out Wolf and his shows and, you know, messages him with any follow-up questions or just check out his shows for for more of his expertise. And thank you so much again for chatting with me today, Wolf. I I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One small note. The new series coming out on the 1st of October is how have scientists been handling the last six months? How do you run a research lab when you can't have people in your lab? Yeah. Which is challenging. Yeah. And um, also you'll hear some of the topics we spoke about today, as many of these labs are now having to deal with their students leaving mm-hmm. and their full-time researchers leaving to go to other areas and how they handle those challenges, but also positively how they're training their researchers to be as prepared as possible for the industry and corporate worlds. So very positive. They're not annoyed. They're not upset and guarding their students and telling them not to leave. They're doing mm-hmm. everything they can to make sure that they are as prepared as possible. Awesome. And that comes out when, did you say? The 1st of October. And we're releasing one a week and we'll continue to do that until I am old, grey and senile, I guess. (laughs) I'm locked into this. This is what I do now. (laughs) Excellent. So yeah, that'll be be out by the time this episode gets released. And yeah, again, everyone, everyone go check out Wolf and his shows. And thank you so much again for your time today. You're welcome. 